Good morning. Welcome here this morning. Um, so we are journeying, journeying through the book of Acts as a church. That is what we've been preaching through for the last little while. And we are at chapter 6 this morning. And we are going to be sprinting through chapter 6 and 7 today. So hang on. So we're going to try to run through them best we can. Um, before we jump into that, I'll just take a moment to pray. Father God, we thank you for this day and your goodness, um, your love for us that you've expressed through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for this body of believers, this family that we belong to. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to know the truth of your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 6, you can turn there if you have a Bible, or you can use your phone and use a Bible app, but only the Bible app, no other apps, all right? <laughs> I preach to youth sometimes, you know, so. Um, chapter 6, we meet for the first time a guy named Stephen, or Stephen, however you want to pronounce it, um, and we meet Stephen because there was an issue that they were having in this early church. And I know a lot of the times we kind of think about like the early church was like the perfect church. That's like the church we want to always be like, you know, be an Acts 2 church, you know? I mean, that's good. But as with any church that has humans that make mistakes, there was an issue. And the issue was is that some widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food to the church. Now, can you imagine a daily food distribution network for the entire church? Like, that seems pretty extensive to me. And I mean, we're like, okay, well, the church was smallish. Well, actually, Pre Peter preached the first sermon and 2,000 people were added that day. So the moment the church began, it, was, it wasn't small. And then it says, as we've read through, daily people were being added to their numbers. So this is an explosion of church that has kind of happened here. Many people estimate that the church was probably around 20,000 people at this point. Now, think about a food distribution network for 20,000 people every day. That's, a, that's fairly extensive. I mean, I'm not a business person. I don't understand all the workings of how that would work, but it seems like it's, it's a bit. And in this distribution, some of the widows were being neglected. Um, the Greek Jews had a complaint against the Hebrew Jews because the Greek Jews' um, widows, so the Greek Jewish widows, were being neglected. That was the complaint. Um, the reason there's two groups of Jewish people that make up this church is um, there were Jews who lived in Jerusalem, but then they got scattered. They were kind of all out and around the world, and that's where they kind of lived and grew up, and they adopted the Greek language and some of Greek culture and customs and stuff like that, and then they moved back to Jerusalem. So these are the people that have moved back to Jerusalem. Um, they are saying, hey, the widows we brought with us, they are being neglected, so we need to fix this. So they go to the 12 disciples, and they say, hey, this is kind of a big problem. Um, how, how do we fix this? Now, the disciples make a very good point. They say, we can't do this. Because God had chosen them 
to pray and preach. And for them to run a 20,000-person food distribution network that was growing every day would take them away from what God had called them to do, which was to pray and to preach. So they proposed to them that, you know, let's, let's select seven, seven guys and put them over this kind of thing and let them run it. So that's where we run into Stephen. Uh, Stephen is selected as one of these seven. Now, these guys weren't necessarily the ones that were doing always the, like the door-to-door handout. These were the guys that were overseeing all of it. Um, you could call them managers or executives if you want to put that in today's terminology to kind of understand what it is that they were doing with this whole thing. Um, but they had some requirements before they just picked just anybody willy-nilly. You know, it's not like they were like, hey, put, pick the baker because he's got food and we're going to use that. No, they had different requirements aside from that. Um, the first thing that they had as a requirement, um, Scripture tells us, is that they needed to be well-attested or have a good reputation to be well-spoken of um, amongst the, the church. So this is people in, in good regard with, with everybody else. Um, the second requirement that they had for them was to be full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Now, I'm like, how would you measure that? Well, I would say, as we think of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So these are the attributes they were looking for in these guys, full of the Spirit, full of love, full of peace and patience and kindness. Those are kind of characteristics that they were looking for. And the third characteristic that they were looking for is someone who had wisdom. So they selected these three guys that, or these seven guys that met these three requirements. I mean, it's interesting that you look at these requirements and they're all related to their character and their relationship with God, as that's the most important thing for them in this job. Um, But they pick seven guys. Stephen and Philip are the only two that we really know anything about. The other guys, we don't know anything about them, except for that they fulfilled these requirements and they kind of helped oversee this thing. Um, And Philip, I think in the next coming coming weeks, we're going to hear some stories about him, probably one of my favorite Bible stories, but you can just come back and hear that sermon. Um, Or you could read ahead. I mean, that's totally cool. You can do that. You got the book. Um, So Stephen is selected. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 6, starting in verse 8. So Stephen is selected, and he's starting to do this, and then it's kind of like his every day, and this is what they're describing. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But... They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Amen for that, hey? Uh, Then, because they couldn't withstand the spirit, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
So here we have Stephen, who's not one of the 12 disciples, going around and performing signs and wonders. Philip, we'll read about him later on, he was also going around performing signs and wonders, and he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was a guy that they got to oversee a food distribution network, walking around in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they tried to trap him, you know, ask him questions, challenge him on what he was saying, and they couldn't. They got nothing. And so the only way that you can really get someone who you got nothing against is if you make up lies and false charges and stir up people about this. So they stirred up a bunch of people to come at him. So they grabbed him, brought him before the council. And there's two main charges that they charge Stephen with. The first one is that he speaks against the temple, which is the building, and I would say everything that was included in that, in the sacrificial system and, and all of that, um, they're saying he's speaking against that. And then the other charge is that he's speaking against, against the law, um, which would be the Ten Commandments is probably the best way that we can kind of compartmentalize that in our heads, is that he was speaking against the Ten Commandments, saying that Jesus was going to change it all. Um, so, it's interesting that they got so up in arms about these things. Part of it is because the religious leaders in that time, they held the temple and the sacrificial system and the law as more important than God himself. And they worshiped those things rather than God. And so, if what Stephen is or these false accusations of what Stephen is saying is true, it's going to completely undermine the two biggest pillars of their faith. And they're like, we can't have that. That's very serious. So they brought him before him, or brought him before the council, um, and give him a chance to defend himself. Now, it's interesting because if this was me, I would probably have been like, no, I didn't say that. That is incorrect. This is a false witness. Like, I would probably try to do a defense like that, but Stephen doesn't really do that. He doesn't kind of like, whoa, 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 guys, we got just big understanding here. Now, he kind of gives almost a sermon. Um, and it's really interesting um, because he, he gives a defense of what he said and why he said what he did, and he actually turns that defense into his offense so that his accusers become the accused from him. Um, so I would encourage you to read the whole speech if you want. I'm going to try and summarize it for you um, very, very shortly. Um, but before we get to that point, the reason that they um, kind of were up in arms about these two charges, because Jesus did talk about this kind of stuff, but not in the way that they thought. So Jesus did say that I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which he did when he died and was resurrected, because he was talking about his body his physical temple. He wasn't talking about the building temple, which is what they were saying that he was talking about. And the other thing is that they were concerned about because he was speaking against the, the law and that Jesus was going to change all the Ten Commandments and all 498 plus other laws that they had. Um, what Jesus said when he was on earth is like, I haven't come to abolish the law to get rid of it. He said, I have come to fulfill the law. Because this is kind of what the point that they missed is that they were living by this checklist of got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, can't do this, got to do this, gotta, you know, all these things. 
And they're like, Jesus is going to come and like rip this out and put another one in or, you know, rearrange it. That's what they were accusing him of. But Jesus didn't come and do that. What Jesus came and did is he checked everything off that list. So that their list of tasks, that they're like, hey, this is all the list of tasks that I have to do to be good with God. Jesus came and was like, no, I got this. And he checked all of them off. So that, there doesn't even need to be a list anymore. So they were upset because they were kind of confused and didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing. Um, so um, Stephen points out, he points out a few things, but I'm going to point out three things from his speech um, to take note of. They were concerned because he was speaking against the temple and saying, this is a holy place, this is where God lives. So the first thing Stephen does is he talks about Abraham. How Abraham, when he was living in the land of Ur with the Chaldeans, is where God called him and met him and worked in his life and his heart. Now the Chaldeans, they were idol worshipers. So it was in a pagan society far, far away from the holy land and the temple because it hadn't been built at the time that God was doing stuff. He's like, God doesn't just live here. God is all over the place. Then he even looks again at uh, when they were in Egypt, that the wonders and the signs and the things that he did while they were in Egypt, which was not in the temple or the Holy Land. He was kind of trying to be like, hey, just so you know, let's look at the whole picture here. Um, Now, he even ends with the kind of the discourse between David and God, because David was the one who's like, God, I want to build a temple for you. Um, And God was like, Where do I dwell? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. I do not dwell in houses made by man. So he quotes these verses. He's like, God doesn't dwell in houses made by man. He's trying to like give him a little bit of a reminder. Um, The second thing that I want to point out is that he um, points out that over and over and over again, Israel rejects the person God has sent to lead them. That the person that God is like, this is the person that's going to lead you right now, they're like, no, we don't want that person. And he points to Joseph. When God was like, Joseph is, Joseph is the one that I've chosen to lead you. And his, 12, or his 11 brothers, they rejected him. Sold him off into slavery, to Egypt. He also looks at Moses, who, when all of Israel was in slavery in Egypt, he, he was like, I'm going to choose Moses. And he like raised him in the perfect place. Moses was saved from the Nile. He was raised in, in Pharaoh's court. And when he was 40, he's like, all right, here we go. Let's do this, people. Let's get delivered from Egypt. And they're like, no, get out of here. We don't want you. So he runs away. 40 years later, he comes back and they like kind of begrudgingly follow him. And then into the wilderness, uh, he rescues them out like God had planned for him to do. Um, And then he goes up on the mountain to get the law from God, and he's gone for a long time. And they're like, Moses is gone. We need someone to follow. We don't want to follow him anymore. So let's build ourselves an idol, and we'll follow it rather than what God has selected for us. He could have pointed to a bunch of the Old Testament prophets as well that God had picked and they rejected and even killed because they didn't want to follow who God had put in place. And he kind of winds that all up and says, Just like you rejected these leaders God has put over Israel, you have rejected Jesus Christ. And you have killed him. I find it interesting that he starts his speech by saying, brothers and fathers, very cordial. And then he ends his speech by calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. 
In other words, uh, they were defiled and unclean. So needless to say, at this point in the story, they were not happy with Stephen for pointing out their errors and actually accusing them of rejecting Jesus Christ and killing him. Scripture says that they ground and gnashed their teeth at him and looked at him in rage. It's like I get this picture of Stephen standing in the middle of this kind of like circle of grown men as like wild pack of dogs just snarling angry at him. They're furious. And it's in that moment when they are filled with rage and anger that God opens the door of heaven and shows Stephen his glory. It says that Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And he can't contain it. I don't think he could have been quiet if he wanted to. He cries out, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Don't you guys see him? They didn't see him. They were filled with anger and rage. And after he said those words, they plugged their ears. It says they stopped their ears so they couldn't hear a word that he said. And then they screamed at the top of their lungs so that they couldn't hear a word that he said. And they ran at him in anger and rage and dragged him outside of the city and threw stones at him till he died. And as those stones were being thrown, Stephen makes two statements. I can't even imagine how those statements sounded. The words he was saying squeezed between the agonizing, painful blow of stones. He cries out and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says, falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Those are powerful words. But Stephen wasn't the first one to use those words. Because that's what Jesus said on the cross before he died. And so I start to think, man, that's like exactly like Jesus. I wonder if there's anything else through this story that is like Jesus. So I started to look. Even at the very beginning, it says Stephen was full of the spirit of wisdom, grace, and power. Same words used to describe Jesus as he walked on this earth. It says Stephen was doing signs and wonders just like Jesus did. It says they couldn't withstand the wisdom of the spirit he had. How many times did the Pharisees come to try and trap Jesus? But they couldn't withstand it. So much so that scripture said after this, they didn't ask him any more questions. They dragged him before the high priest. And because of the timeline, this is most likely the exact same high priest that Jesus stood before. 
when they accused him of the exact same things that they accused Stephen of, speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. Jesus calls them hard-hearted and stiff-necked. Jesus said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Gave his spirit to God. Before he died, Jesus said, do not hold this sin against them. Same as what Stephen said before he fell asleep. As the Bible says, and why does it say fall asleep? Because death is not the end for those who believe in Christ. Because we will be resurrected again just like Jesus was. And so I look at this story. And I ask myself this question of God. Why in that moment, when he was surrounded by the council and they were angry, filled with rage towards him, why was it in that moment that you opened heaven to show him your glory? Because you knew he wouldn't keep silent. You knew their response would be an aggravation of their rage. I don't know about you, but if I'm dealing with some sort of wild, trap-snarling beast in a corner, you don't provoke it. But it seems that's what happened here. Because God's not surprised at their response. He knew what would happen. Did God want him to die? And then I have to come back to the fact that the Bible teaches God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. How was God in control of this? Yes. Stephen was exactly where God wanted him to be. And that's hard. That's hard for us. Because if God was in control of this situation, then that means God was in control when two of my best friends were killed in high school. How can God be in control of all these situations that come our way and still be good. The Bible teaches that it's because pain and suffering and trials and tribulations have a purpose. Every hard thing that you go through has a purpose in your life. It is not meaningless. In Romans 8, it says, and God works all things together 
for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. That is the truth that I have to hang on to. Because I don't know how God could take a situation so horrible and painful as some of the ones that I know we are walking through. And how could God turn that for good? I don't know. I do not have an answer for you. But I know that he can and he will. That's the truth. Part of the process of being a Christian is being refined, is being made to be more like Jesus. And how they refine gold is through fire and flame. And we are refined as Christians as well as we go through hard times. And God is working them for our good. Now, He doesn't call these things good. God doesn't call some of the situations we walk through good. But he says he can work it for good. For those who love him. For those who believe in him. And that's hard. Because some situations I don't know. I don't know how. But I don't know everything that God knows. I don't see the full picture, but I see the truth, and I know who my God is. He is good, and he will work it for my good. He says he can. I believe he can, because my God, our God, is that powerful. He is that powerful that any situation, no matter how dark it may seem, he can make it something for your good, for his glory. That's amazing. So I trust in that. It causes me to turn my mind to Jesus. who was brutally beaten beyond recognition. He was humiliated. He was tortured. He was mocked. He was killed on a cross on a Friday afternoon. And we call it Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. If God can use the death of his son for good, to be praised, you know that he can use any situation that you are going through for your good. Because that is who my God is. He is that powerful. So we rest in that truth. We cling tightly to that truth and put our faith in him. Let's pray.
Father God. Some things are so hard for our finite, small minds to understand. Lord, but you have given us what you wanted us to have. The truth that you are good and you will work it for our good. And though we don't know how, we trust you. And we praise you and we thank you for your grace extended to us through Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hearts will believe and cling to this truth. I pray that for every single person here, God. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.